Amen. Let us uh, turn, brothers and sisters, our confessional reading. Question and answer one, page 201. In the smaller forms and prayers, you can also find it in the back of the Trinity Psalter. Question and answer one. And uh, there are two question and answers to the first Lord's Day, but we'll take them separately. Lord willing, question and answer two next week. And uh, we'll continue in the, in the catechism for the morning until we uh, finish our work through Ezekiel. This may change, but I think that'll be about Lord's Day 7. We'll see. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll continue through some of these uh, early Lord's Days, and beginning with just the first question answered, page 201. I'll say the question, let's together say the answer. Question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. But belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let us turn then to our scripture reading. Brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll read, we'll read the whole chapter. And the, whole, the whole chapter definitely pulls together in a number of ways. Verses 10 to 15 are related, especially to 17 and 18. Verse 4 especially is related to verse 22. And so we'll read the whole chapter for context. We will focus on verses 16 to 23. Let us begin our scripture reading, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So far, reading. <coughs> Dear congregation, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all, use, you ones, yins, you guys, you all. These are some of the ways that modern English speakers will try to talk about you in the plural. Because unlike the biblical languages of Hebrew and Greek, and unlike many languages, and unlike Middle English and unlike Old English, we no longer have a standard form to speak about you all in the plural. In Middle English, there was, not, there was a way to, to say that. In Old English, not only was there a way to say you, know, you singular, you plural, they also had a way to say you, two people. They had a way to, to specifically speak about two people. Uh, but we have lost that. Depends on who you ask. Maybe the influence of the French is to blame. But not because they didn't have a you all. They had a you all. And so it's all kind of rather complicated and messed up. But it ends up here with the fact that we don't have a you all in our language. Not a standard one. Well, the text before us for some verses especially, that makes it more difficult to read. Because 
Every single time we see you or yours in verses 16 to 23 in the Greek, it's in the plural. Every time. Some of them easily apply in either a personal way or a you-all way. Some of them only make sense biblically if we are understanding that it is to you all, to the church. And so uh, we're going to keep that distinction in mind as we work through the text. And uh, if we think about this in relationship to the catechism, uh, we, we have the intensely personal language of question and answer one, and that's appropriate. And there are other places in Scripture where salvation is spoken of in an intensely personal way. I know that Jesus Christ has saved sinners of whom I am chief. Uh, but we remember that question and answer one is related to question and answer 54, where the believer speaks about the you all of the church and says, of this community, I am and always will be a living member. And so, again, we're going to keep the distinction between the you, the I, the you all, and the we. And we're going to keep that distinction in mind this morning. And we see that in, in, our, in our very theme. Be comforted that you all exist for God. Uh, but then our sermon points are stated in, in individually. Not my own holiness, not my own wisdom, not my own church. Well, we, we begin with this, our first point, not my own holiness. We're looking especially at the first two verses of our text, which uh, these two little verses use the word temple four times, and that immediately takes us to the language of worship. Uh, and not just worship in general, but it, it's uh, two verses that are taking us to the special presence of God. We see that especially uh, in uh, verse 17, for God's temple is holy. Uh, there's another way we see it, and the Greek has two different words for temple. And in the Septuagint, Old Greek translation, uh, this was the word that was used more specifically to refer to the holy of holies. Okay, so when we take this word together with that phrase, for God's temple is holy, what's the apostle telling us? What's the, what's the application? We're, we're talking not just about the whole temple building, we're talking more specifically about the special presence of God special dwelling presence of God. In the Old Testament, that was the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle, then in the first temple, and then in the second temple. Where is the special presence of God? The connection and the point that the Apostle Paul is making in these two verses is that you all are now the Holy of Holies. It is the you all of the church no longer in one place in Jerusalem, but now wherever the you all of God's people gather together in one local body or another. You all, including this very you all right here in this room, you all gathered together in God's name are the Holy of Holies in the New Testament. This is now where God's special presence is. It is by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is because of the work of Jesus Christ 
When was the veil of the Holy of Holies torn in two? When Christ was on the cross and died for his bride, the church. And so this language of temple, of holiness, of you are that temple. It's, it's not just the, the whole temple building, it's, it's the Holy of Holies. So the New Testament church is, where you all of God's people are gathered together. We are now God's building. 3 verse 9, wherever we are gathered together. It is again possible because of the work of Jesus Christ. He is the one who at his death tore the veil of the temple. This is a great comfort to us collectively. We are his people. He is our head. He gives us the special indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, our divine helper. And this is a great comfort to us individually. This is one of those times with the you all could also be stated in the singular. How, how are you singularly saved? Not by your own strength, not by your own holiness, only by the holiness of Christ. I must look to Jesus, my faithful Savior, who has fully paid for all my sins. And so, brothers and sisters, I exist, we exist, as God's saved people for the very purpose of worshiping Him we are saved by God's own holiness, and we gather together in a special way because of His holy presence. Well, let's come now to our second point. Not my own wisdom. Not my own wisdom. And here in the text, in verse 18 especially, we see that, yes, we're dealing with you alls and all of yours as is uh, the language of the Greek, but we also have the individual members are recognized, although especially in the language of warning in this text. And so verse 18 speaks about no one, anyone among you all, and he and him. And so we might think of the language of, of the Apostle Peter, uh, who speaks about the church as the living temple of God, God's spiritual building, with Christ as the chief cornerstone, which reminds us of the language of Christ as our foundation back in 11 and 12. And then, who are you individually? You're living stones that make up that building. Uh, and so the individual place is not eliminated, even as, as God speaks to us collectively so often. Uh, and so uh, here in this text, the 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 individual language especially comes through in the warning. Uh, if anyone, if any individual uh, is working in a way that would profane, pollute, destroy the church of God, then may he repent. Let him become a fool instead of having the wisdom of this world, instead of being wise in this age. It is a very serious thing to destroy God's temple. Looking back at verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And how is the church destroyed? How is the church profane? Really, the apostle is giving us one specific example. 
the church is profaned, polluted, destroyed when anyone would work <clears throat> to make the wisdom of man the foundation of the church rather than having Christ as our only cornerstone foundation upon which our church is built. And so whenever, uh, whenever man-centered ideas, man-centered thinking, whether that's thinking centered upon the man of my own self, or thinking of the man's ideas of, of other men, but whatever it is, however man-centered thinking enters the church, that's what destroys it. That's what God calls us away from. That's what God says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Uh, we must be uh, centered upon only God's word. That is our only standard. We search the scriptures to test the teachers. We search the scriptures to test any confessions that we would have. And everything is measured by the word of God. Everything is measured by God's word, God's wisdom. Certainly this begins with the cross itself. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it is especially the cross which the world sees as foolishness, but which we see as central to our identity. It's a symbol of death. It's a gruesome thing. But why is it beautiful? It's beautiful because it was the death that paid for our sins. It's beautiful because it's the death that led to resurrection life. It's beautiful because our Savior went there willingly for us. The world sees it as folly. We must see it as the great love and wisdom which it is. But then we move on to speak more broadly, not just of the cross, but of all of the wisdom of God. And so at the end of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 1.30 speaks in a broad way about how Christ became to us wisdom from God. Or in another place, in Colossians 2, verse 3, the apostle says it this way, Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Brothers and sisters, we must stand, especially centrally, starting point on the cross. We do not, we do not stand only upon the cross. We, we are called to be measured by all of Christ's wisdom and none of man's wisdom. Man's wisdom is what would destroy the church. And so uh, there's two Old Testament quotations to support the Apostle's word by the Spirit. He begins with a quote, verse 19 from Job 5. It speaks about the fact that the crafty plans of man come to nothing against God. The second quote in verse 20 comes from Psalm 94, which we sang together earlier this morning. And Psalm 94 goes more foundational. It goes to the fact that God can not only stop the crafty wisdom of man, but God knows the futile thoughts of man before they even take shape. And so Psalm 94 goes to even a deeper level. How do we pull this together then? And this middle portion is the language of a warning. And so it's appropriate that our application comes in the form of a warning. If anyone here ever thinks that he has a valid objection against God, you must know 
that not only would the so-called craftiness of any objection you have be destroyed by the law, but that before the objection even forms in your mind, God already knows what it is. And God already knows it is a futile objection. We have no standing against God. If we are depending upon our own wisdom, our own might, in any way, we are destroying God's church and we're destroying ourselves. But surely then, this does lead immediately to the comfort of the perfect wisdom of God. When we're leaning upon God's wisdom, there is nothing that can come against God's wisdom. The wisdom of the world, the wisdom of this age, whatever age that is, is nothing against God, and against the truth of what really happened on the cross, and against all the treasures of wisdom are in Christ. Surely we must not lean upon our own understanding or the wisdom of any man. We exist, I exist, in order to learn from God. And now we come to our third point, brothers and sisters, not my own church. And uh, here uh, we have we have two things going on. On the one hand, we have some you-all statements that really only make sense when speaking about the church. But there's still things that are related to, to intensely personal truths. In fact, when we come to verses 21 to 23, we have the language which now relates very closely to the, to the language of question answer one. Question answer one was, was written in the light of this language. So question answer one speaks of our only comfort in life and in death. Verse 22 speaks of life and death being yours. Question answer one says, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 23 says, you are Christ's. And uh, yes, these are, again, in the plural in our text, but they are words which can appropriately um, be applied to the individual. At least, at least in, in many senses, there is, there is some way in which the authority of the church the end of verse 22, all are yours, that only makes sense when we remember this is in the book. Okay, so there are some things about the authority of the church that only makes sense when we read it in the plural. Uh, but that, that language of life and death, not having dominion over you, that language of belonging to Christ, well that can be that can be a communal truth that we speak together, and it's something that we can take on our own lips in a, a personal way. Well, the, the statement of verse 20, 21, 22, it's not the easiest, so let's unpack it by taking it in, in two groups. The first group of, of words, and again, this relates to all things are yours. Uh, verse the end of verse 22, what are, what are the groups of words here? The first group we're going to look at is whether Paul 
or Apollos or Cephas or the world. Okay, to understand this, we need to look back at 3 verse 4. There was a slogan in Corinth where some would stand with one teacher or another and identify themselves by certain teachers in the church. And so they have slogans. I am of Apollos, or I am of Paul. And the point of the apostle is that teachers do not own anybody in the church. He says you need to completely turn your slogans and sayings around on their head. It is not, I am of so-and-so. It is rather that any teacher, whether it is the very eloquent Apollos, or whether it is the Apostle Paul, who has that special and temporary office of Apostle, which doesn't even exist anymore. Whatever it is, they are all merely servants. It's the, it's the language in the beginning of the chapter. They are not anything. They are servants. Verse 5. Verse you can look at many places where the Apostle Paul says it. He says it again at the beginning of chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, it is true that, and other texts speak plainly about this, it is true that officers in the church have a certain kind of authority. You can be called overseers and, and, and such. But it is not the authority of ownership. Think about the difference between the authority of the owner and the authority of the foreman. And let's just say you're, you're on a ranch, which I don't know too many of us have worked on a ranch, but I think we're familiar with that structure. Well, what's the authority of the owner? Whatever the owner says goes. That's the word. Now, does the foreman have a certain kind of authority? Yes, but it's, it's delegated authority. If he says anything that goes against the will of the owner, then it is wrong. It should be disregarded if you, if you know it's against the will. That's, that's what the Apostle is saying. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's an extremely eloquent preacher like Apollos. It doesn't matter if it's someone who has the special office of apostle like me. We are just servants. So there's a real way in which we can speak about the church as a whole being over the individuals. For brothers and sisters, here's an immediately practical application. Do not let any individual, whether a pastor or anyone, ever become more important than the church as a whole. Be comforted that the church is bigger than weak individuals. Weak individuals who are only called as servants and as fellow members of the church body as a whole. And so the apostle turns their slogan on and said, no, you do not belong to him or to me or to anyone. We are all just servants. If anything, we should all see ourselves as under the church as a whole. In that sense, we are yours. We belong to you all. Now let's look at the second uh, group of words. 
Verse 22, now in the middle. Life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. You know, if you have a membership in various kinds of earthly places, like a, like a gym or a museum, well, that gives you a certain kind of privilege for the moment. It gives you entrance into the building. It gives you the right to use exercise equipment. It gives you the right to, to view the displays. But no gym, no museum that I know of has ever been foolish enough to pretend to give authority over the world, over death, and over the future. What is membership in Christ's church? It's membership under our head, our victor, Jesus Christ. And he has a victory, which gives the assurance of resurrection, following after the first fruits of his own resurrection. He has a victory, which calls us not only into being members of his body, but to be members of the family of God as sons and daughters, heirs of the kingdom, with that sure promise of the future. And brothers and sisters, there's more we can say. In more ways than one. In the church. Death belongs to you. You have no need to fear death because Christ has conquered you. The future belongs to you. You do not need to be anxious about the future. Because in belonging to Christ, you have the promise of eternal life with God, so that after a thousand years, we'll have no less days to sing His praise. This is Christ's church. So the great theological application is this. Be comforted that the church is under Christ who has conquered death itself. And so that's how we looked at the first group of words, we looked at the second group of words, how, how does it all end? You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. We exist. I exist as one member of Christ Church in order to be God's own possession. And under Christ, who is called our head, who is called our victor, under Christ, we then have authority over the world, over death, over the future. Well, uh, brothers and sisters, we read 1 Corinthians 15. For our assurance of departed. Let's hear these words again. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Why? Because we're under who? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the comfort of the believer is not just any kind of comfort. It's truly comfort for life and death. It's comfort not only for the present, but also for the short promise of the future. We are under Christ, 
and together with Christ, we are over all other things. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our Lord, we rejoice in the great truths of your word, the great promises of your word. May we be those who lean upon Christ in every way, can rejoice in the comfort of your promise of eternal life. Give us strength through our days on this earth. Continue to draw our eyes to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray.